You're listening to the podcast of Eucharist Church in San Francisco, a community of faith seeking to live all of life in reference to Christ. Join us now for this week's message. As some of you may know, who have been uh, talking with me the last week or so, I've been carefully watching the unfolding situation involving a wildfire that broke out a little over two weeks ago in the area where I grew up uh, east of here in El Dorado County. Uh, The Caldor Fire, which as it has been named, went from just a few acres one day to about 400 acres the next day to about uh, 1,000 and then 2,500 acres the day after that. And then on its fourth and fifth day, it exploded with terrifying ferocity from 6,500 acres to 65,000 acres in a period of about 36 hours. Uh, The best way to describe it was that it became an uncontrollable monster gobbling up more than 1,000 acres an hour. You saw that, may have seen the pictures online of, uh, or the the videos online of huge, huge uh, conifer trees catching fire like a match, just whoosh. Then five seconds later, they're done burning. And the next one, whoosh, just like going through uh, the wilderness out there. Praise be to God that it has since slowed its burn rate uh, significantly over the past week. It also helps that a crew, the crew fighting it went from several hundred firefighters to over 3,000 firefighters and an, arson, an entire arsenal of planes and helicopters. But even so, the fire has continued to grow every day uh, to over 150,000 acres now which is a burn area, in case you don't understand acres, approximately five times the entire city of San Francisco. Uh, As I mentioned, I've been paying close attention to this because uh, it got to within about eight to 10 miles of the home where my parents live and my my brother and sister-in-law live next door. Uh, And the good news is that it appears that the fire is unlikely uh, at this point to spread toward them. It's mostly burning up in the wilderness toward Tahoe. But these past two weeks, I've gained a new appreciation for how unbelievably powerful a wildfire can be. These fires are a vivid reminder of our smallness in the face of nature. It's always amazing to me that we can put a man on the moon, but we can't stop a wildfire. I also have a new appreciation for firefighters and for the science behind fighting fires. I found myself feeling uh, even a bit emotional a few times as I was listening to the community meetings online where the fire captains were describing what it is that their crews were doing. I admired their courage and their perseverance in the face of so much danger. These folks put their lives at stake for the community working absurdly long shifts in brutal conditions, sometimes 24 or 36 or 48 hours straight. One thing that has become clear to me is that the people fighting fires have a healthy sense of respect for their opponent. Many of these folks have spent years and years studying fire behavior. They have practiced and honed their various skills. They research the impact of various weather patterns and understand the challenges that come with different types of terrain. They know how to fight fire with appropriate tools at the appropriate time in the appropriate way. They know when to hold their ground and when to retreat and when to set up a new line of defense. They have studied the enemy and have a proper appreciation of its vast potential for destruction. 
These fire crews don't have any illusions about what they're up against. When they're called to duty, they don't imagine themselves going out for a picnic in the mountains, nor do they conceive of themselves as able to single-handedly put out a fire. It seems to me that they must view themselves as soldiers in a protracted battle. In the case of the Dixie Fire up near Lassen, it's a battle that has lasted for nearly six weeks. I was researching online that some of the longest running fires in the history of the world are actually in, in Siberia. And they ran for like many, many, many months on end. To be a firefighter is to come to terms with being at war with a wily and powerful enemy that is not to be underestimated. Now, I mention all of this because our reading from Ephesians chapter 6 portrays our existence as Christians in similar terms. St. Paul reminds his readers in this famous passage that to be a Christian is to be at war. And so today I'd like to reflect on this familiar text together for a few minutes. In specific, I'd like to talk about four ways, maybe it's three, three ways that Christians often fail to come to terms with what St. Paul is trying to convey. The first is this. Failing to appreciate that we are, in fact, actually at war. The whole passage assumes that we are at war, that we have actual enemies, that our lives are taking place in a battlefield. But I think there's a temptation for us uh, living in kind of 21st century America to fall back on maybe like gardening metaphors or farming metaphors when it comes to thinking about our spiritual lives. We talk about growing or flourishing. And these are solid concepts in the Christian tradition that have a place. I think they're, they're great. But if we're not careful, these kind of metaphors can lull us into forgetting that we are actually at war. And so the normal temptation is to see spiritual warfare, you hear that language, as a kind of exceptional thing, right? Most of life is normal, but when something weird happens or when something seems especially difficult, suddenly we start talking about spiritual warfare. And what this reveals is that we have forgotten that we are always involved in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't something that happens from time to time. It is the context of our lives. We often kind of fall into the trap of uh, the mindset of uh, the, devil's, the devil of the gaps mindset. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you have probably heard of the idea of the God of the gaps, right? It's this problem that many Christians found themselves having when they, they pitted science versus God, and whatever can't be explained by science is attributed to God, which, as you know, over the last couple hundred years has been a shrinking, shrinking piece of the pie. There's a little tiny sliver left you know, that, that people seem they cannot be able to explain by science. So they, okay, well, let's throw that to God. That's got to be God, right? Well, over time, um, this has been something that theologians have rejected soundly as, as being a, a terrible paradigm. But I've noticed something similar happens with regard to the devil. Whatever can be explained in natural terms, we assume has nothing to do with the devil. But when it comes to weird stuff or spooky stuff or stuff we can't readily explain, suddenly our instinct is to immediately assign it to the devil. If I get sick one Sunday morning, I typically think about who I was around the last few days. I look for a natural explanation. But if I get sick every Sunday morning for six weeks in a row, I might start declaring that I'm experiencing spiritual warfare. But functionally, what I'm doing when I do this is I'm saying that most of my life is not actually a battle, 
and I'm falling back on a devil of the gaps explanation. Not to say that you know, the devil couldn't impact your health. I'm not saying that. St. Paul wants us to be aware of the fact that spiritual warfare is not an occasional thing. It is the entire unfolding context of our lives. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Therefore, as St. Paul tells us, we must, in the language of uh, Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. This isn't something we prepare for once in a while. This is daily life. Okay, so the first way we fail to come to terms with what St. Paul is saying here is that we forget that we are actually continuously at war. The second way we often fail to appropriate and take it to heart uh, St. Paul's message here in Ephesians chapter 6 is that we engage in fighting the wrong battle and thus relying on the wrong tactics. Uh, St. Paul tells his readers in verse 12, he says, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. St. Paul wants his readers to put their energy into fighting the right enemy. There most certainly are flesh and blood enemies, by the way, at times. Like, let's not, let's not deny that. The people of God have had real flesh and blood enemies. Persecution of the church is a real thing. But what Paul wants us to understand is that what we are experiencing when we experience that is merely a manifestation in the material world of a greater spiritual enemy that lurks behind, within, and amongst the material dimension. We probably need to explore this whole notion, this whole idea, this whole question in catechesis sometime about what exactly Paul is referring to when he talks about rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There's a lot to talk about there. But what I want you to take note of today is that, Paul, what, is that Paul wants his readers to not allow themselves to reduce their concerns to merely worldly, materialistic, or naturalistic forces. Whenever we concern ourselves with, for example, merely containing a virus or stopping a fire or voting for the right politician or defending our rights or throwing ourselves into any other cause you can think of that fills the headlines these days, we must be careful, we must be careful to not frame our action in ultimate terms. Healthcare, firefighting, politics, organizing, advocacy, these things all matter. But divorced from a spiritual context in which we understand the cosmic battle we're in, they can become ends in themselves and play right into the enemy's hand by blinding us to the bigger picture of what is unfolding. If St. Paul were here today speaking to us, I'm completely convinced, I'm confident that he would have a lot to say to us about our temptations toward technological, political, and humanistic solutionism. Uh, Elliot uh, Hott, who's here today, spoke about this in catechesis a few weeks back about the technological solutionism. But we, we see it everywhere, technological, political, and humanistic solutionism. The idea that if we could just leverage enough resources, enough people, enough effort toward a problem that we could solve it. This reductionistic mindset is at, the, at its core a denial of the broader spiritual context of the world in which we live. 
It's a kind of idolatry of humanity. It places us in our efforts at the center of the picture. It's not that we should be opposed to seeking collective human action on various problems in our world. It's that these actions must emerge out of a spirit-led, Christ-centered submission to God and dependence upon his power to actually produce some lasting fruit of the kingdom that we're actually looking for. The reductionist mindset that we, that we have fallen into often means uh, that our tactics reflect the battle that we think that we're in. This usually takes on some form of controlling the natural world or controlling other people's behavior whether through seeking various political regulations, financial motivations, uh, threats of outright violence. Many of our tactics simply come down to some variation of coercion. Alternatively, we use practices of persuasion or manipulation. We place our bets on education, or we utilize psych the psychology of marketing to influence people's desires. But however you slice it, the goal is nearly always the attempt to control other people's thoughts and behavior, diseases, natural forces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Name a topic, any topic, and what we see is that in, there's an all-out tug of war happening in the public sphere about it right now, whether it be vaccines or climate change or racism or immigration or any other topic you can imagine right now. But if our battle is not actually against flesh and blood, not against the forces of the natural world, but against these cosmic powers that St. Paul draws our attention to, then the tactics we use, that we utilize in our everyday struggle will need to reflect that. St. Paul draws our attention to a series of images describing the armor and weaponry of a first century soldier clothing and footwear that allows for agile movement, a breastplate protecting the vital organs in the center of our body, a helmet protecting the head, a shield, a sword. Now, we often find this image to be a cute metaphor. It's great for youth ministry, right? Get the, get the, the armored person up there and they hold all the pieces, right? It's a way to remember maybe some vital uh, virtues truth and righteousness and peace and hope and faith and so on and so forth. But I'm fairly convinced that this is not what Paul is after. He is not merely trying to get people to think of life in terms of a battle so that he can use the soldier's outfit to describe some virtues. It's interesting uh, because the early church fathers, when they look at and reflect on this passage here, they all understood this image uh, of the armor as a means of highlighting the various aspects of Christ. The armor elements are not various virtues that a person should hone in themselves, but rather various aspects of the person of Jesus. For them, to put on the full armor of God was identical with putting on Christ or clothing oneself in Christ, as St. Paul says in other places in his writings. So in reality, there is only one tactic that Paul is advocating in this battle. Put on Christ. He is your armor. He is your protection. He is your weaponry. He is your means of defeating the enemy. He is the built of truth that holds us together. 
He is the way, the truth, and the life, he tells us. He is our righteousness. He is our head. He is our hope of salvation. He is the faithful one who is our shield. He is the word of God through whom all things came into existence and by whom all things will be judged. He is the good news, the one who alone can bring peace. In the end, the whole metaphor, the whole metaphor points us back to Christ. The only way to avoid finding yourself in the wrong battle or relying on the wrong tactics is to focus on Christ, to clothe ourselves in Christ, to make him our armor and our weaponry in the battle that we're in. The final way that we fail to appropriate what St. Paul tells us in this passage is that we attempt to engage in battle and fight without power. We fight without power. St. Paul begins this whole passage uh, with this very important phrase in verse 10. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Many times I've heard people teach on spiritual warfare and they come back to emphasizing me, my power, my activity. But Paul says the opposite here, actually. If in fact our fight is not something merely transpiring at the level of the material world, then we are utterly foolish if we are trying to fight in our own power or in the power of science or in the power of psychology or in the power of business or in the power of education or in the power of politics or in the power of marketing or in the power of technology. And I could go on and on and on. We make a category mistake when we think that we can do battle in our own strength in this cosmic battle. The answer is, again, to put on Christ, to make our life in Christ, to recognize that he is our armor. He is our defense. He is our security. He is our hope. And beyond this, to recognize that the battle that we're in is actually his battle. It's his battle. It's his fight. And the good news is that he's already struck the fatal blow against the enemy. Our participation in this battle is but a mop-up operation. He has defeated the powers and the principalities. He has made a mockery of them, as the book of Colossians tells us. He has defeated death itself, as the book of 1 Corinthians tells us. And so our entire goal in this battle can be summarized in one word that Paul repeats multiple times. And the word is stand. It comes from the Old Testament where, where God tells the people of Israel, stand and watch me fight for you. He tells us, uh, Paul tells us in verse 11, to stand against the wiles of the devil. In verse 13, he tells us to take up the whole armor of God so that we might be able to stand firm. And then in verse 14, he says, stand, therefore, as if he hasn't said it enough times, stand, he says, therefore. He's not asking us to take the next mountain. He's not asking us to go out and get the devil or to do something heroic. He simply wants us to hold our ground. The very ground that he has already taken for us. He is merely asking us not to abandon the place that he has given us. And the way we do that is by turning our whole attention to him and investing ourselves fully in his identity. I think many of us are feeling the strain of the times that we're living in right now. It does feel like we're living in a battlefield in many ways, doesn't it? 
But the battles happening around us, in most cases, are not actually the real battle. The battle is won and lost, not in our ability to accomplish something, but in our ability and our willingness to depend fully on Christ, to receive the fullness of Christ, and to do our daily life from within his protection, from within the, the security of his power. But just by way of confession, I've been noticing that I've been finding myself feeling pretty tired recently. Maybe some of you have the same feeling. Some of you have told me that you're feeling pretty tired. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're feeling tired, why? Lots of reasons we could be tired. Certainly physical tiredness is a natural part of being a human. But at the level of a spiritual tiredness, why? Are we fighting the wrong battles? Are we fighting our own strength? It's a question I've been asking myself. If so, then listen to what Jesus says to us. Come unto me, he says, and I will give you rest. Put on my armor, he says. Make your home in me, and I will be your defense. I will be your protection, he says. I will be your security and your hope. So brothers and sisters, today, may we come to him and be strong in his strength, the strength of his power. And may we have eyes to see the battle that we're in, wisdom to fight with the right tactics, humility to rely fully on Christ, and the hope and joy that comes from knowing that he has already won the war. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's take just a few moments. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that Though we are caught in the midst of a battle, it is not a question about how this battle will end. That you, through your son Jesus, have secured victory. That you have trampled down death by death. And you have given us hope in the resurrection. We pray, Lord, that today that you would set our eyes upon Jesus again. That we would be clothed in him and that we'd make, uh, make our life in him, that in him we might live and move and have our being in the power of his strength. And Lord, I pray today for anyone who, like myself, feels tired. God, I ask that uh, you would help us to sort out, are we fighting the wrong battles? Are we using the wrong tactics? Lord, we pray today that we would be, we would be yoked up to you again, Jesus that you would give us rest for our souls. This is our prayer. We pray it in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist podcast. For more information, visit our website at eucharistsf.org.